Well, good evening, Neil. Yeah, winter's here, it seems. I think we've both got the fires going on in the background, have we? Well, we haven't got our stove installed yet, Derek, so we're just going to light a fire in the back garden and huddle Fair around enough. one for the time good being. Stuff. Good stuff. Old uh, school. Yeah, old school. excellent. Real. This is all because of like our last guest that we had on, the brilliant interview with uh, Chuck, if you can help me with Farrer. Um, despite his, his was the Swedish he said his surname was? Swiss. Yes. And um, he is a, well, former, but they are always remain in many of you see it and you know you'll you'll hear this on one of those that that episode listeners where we talk about why we're all lighting the fires and not putting on the gas and electricity because of what's going on in ukraine and chuck delves into that and gives us his his you know with with his the benefit of his military background and military awareness um it's really fascinating now we got another we're going to dog really quickly over to a grain callister um, yeah, waiting, waiting room, about to let him in now. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. interesting one as well. So we're just going to admit him and introduce you to him. Okay. Hi, Graham. We Hi, have Derek. a welcome. How are you? Thanks so much for coming along. Oh, it's a pleasure. How are you? You yeah, can hear us all okay, Graham. Uh, yep, yep, I can. Um, I think Rachel should be joining us. Uh, oh, excellent! In a moment as well. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, forwarded the link, so hopefully be on in a sec. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, while we're waiting, just introduce us really quickly. Graham, we are the historians. I'm Neil. Yeah. This is Derek. Derek here. Oh, yeah. And uh, as the name suggests, we're a little bit too old to be hip. And yeah. we're not, <laughs> unlike your good self um, and Rachel, we're, we're not historians. You know, we are, yeah. I suppose, history just come to us quite naturally. History lovers. Yeah. We lovers. But unfortunately, I suppose, speaking from my own perspective, I never did what I what what you did, which is yeah. actually make it my 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 life day job. Oh, yeah. job. Yeah. Um and so that's what we're going to be talking to you about this evening okay. on the historians. And now there's Rachel there. And good evening Rachel. Hi, Hi there. Rachel. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Welcome to the historians. Welcome. Uh, my name is Neil. This is Derek and I believe you know Hi. this gentleman already. Hi. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you yeah. all. And again, as I was just saying there, thank you for taking your time to join us this evening. Uh, myself and Derek have set up this channel and we've had some amazing guests on already. We really, mm. your book that's coming out really jumped at us. We'll get into that in mm. a moment. And as I was just explaining who we are, we're, we're basically not too overly hip amateur historians. Uh, unlike you guys, we're the real deal. So we're looking yeah. forward to hearing some so Get a bit of an education. A yeah. bit of an education. Free education <laughs> yeah. for the next 40 minutes or so without having to pay for it, you know. So yeah. could you guys could you guys just introduce yourselves to our listeners, please? Um, Graeme, you are, you know, basically tell us who you are and what you're about and how you got to write this book that we'll get into in a moment. Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Graeme Callister. I'm a, a senior lecturer in history and war studies at, at York St. John University in the UK. Um, and I really focus on the period of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the French Revolution, um, but also looking at warfare more widely from the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, uh, which is kind of what led me to, to the book. You know, I look at warfare, I look at battle, I look at how they're fought, but I don't know a huge amount about the medieval period, which is really where Rachel came in. So I guess I'll, I'll pass straight over to her for the, the introduction to start with. Very good, Rachel. Thanks very much. So I'm a history teacher and an independent researcher. 
And my PhD, which I completed a few years ago now, was on medieval military history. So um, I specialized in tournaments, jousts, and formal combats in the medieval period, uh, and especially their links to warfare. So oh. I was I was very much kind of the foil to Graham's modernism <laughs> slant, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, from perspective, uh, just fascinating stuff. Uh, I was just saying to Graham before you came on, Rachel, you know, mm-hmm. I, I kind of, you know, you shouldn't have too many regrets in life, but, you know, it's, it, you guys are doing the stuff and, and presumably getting paid for it as well, which... Uh, myself and Derek just waste our yeah. talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> but great stuff. And how did you? How did you guys come together to create this book? Like, what was the, the genesis of that? So we, we knew each other already from we did our PhDs together. Uh, so we, we knew each other um, already. And then um, a few years ago, I, had, I just had this idea of um, well, I was teaching a module on on well called the face of battle kind of taking inspiration from keegan's face of battle um you know to the legendary book of the 70s that kind of asked people to to rethink the idea of the experience of battle so i was teaching a module about battle and i realized that there's no single book that really looks at at the idea of battle and the influences on on how a battle is won and lost Mm. over the past thousand years and you know you're sitting there thinking ah i need something for the reading list I, i really wish there was a book and it occurred to me maybe i should try and write the book and uh, maybe I should uh, get some ideas so I thought about it for a couple of years and, and didn't do much and then you know one day I finally got my backside into gear and thought I'll, I'll start this started making some notes and realized no I really needed the input of someone who, who knew a lot more about the medieval period and I, I mentioned it to Rachel and uh, you no know, she came with immediately a load of great ideas and, and we just thought you know what why don't we write this one together it's, uh, it's incredible how, how it, it hadn't been written I mean, yeah. you'd think even, you know, uh, at Sandhurst might have a volume, uh, you know, dedicated to it. Um, but yeah, really fascinating. That, that's what struck me about it as well. And am I right in saying the book just released on the 16th of September? Is that, is that right? Just released? Yeah, so it yeah. Came, came out in um, hard copy on the, the 16th with Pen and Sword. Uh, the ebook was just released and the kind of official release date was the, uh, the 30th of September. So it's... Uh, okay. No, less yeah. than a week old. Fresh off the press. Yeah. Fresh off the press. Unfortunately, we didn't have a chance to read it, guys. Um, we'd like to do before we have guests on. But, you know, that, that, that also, you know, introduces an element where we're learning as, as well as the listeners. So, you know, no harm there. And just give its full title, Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helmand uh, by Graham Kalser and Rachel Wilfred. Like, you know, straight away into, into the... The title there, it's, it's going to grab you. You know, battle, you can't go wrong with that. And then, you know, Hastings, I've been there myself and it's it's an iconic battlefield, isn't it? It's just, yeah. because like as kids, I remember the stories about, um, oh my gosh, forgive me now, King, 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 getting the arrow in his eye. Yeah. This is, this is on the Bay of Tapestry, isn't it? This is all told by the Normans, who were the victors, of course. And you can go to Hastings, or, or Battle, as, as it's actually called, the town, um, and you can stand on the spot where he, he got the arrow in his eye. Now, I mean, I know that's open to... <laughs> it could be there, it could be there. But it's just, it is one of those iconic battlefields, isn't it, to kick us off? Yes, it absolutely is. And one of the things about Hastings is, although the stories are so well-known, mm. you know, we, we've all heard about the arrow in the eye, We've all heard about the Normans luring the, the Anglo-Saxons down off their hill to, to attack them. Um, 
actually, there are still so many things about the Battle of Hastings that when we were doing our research, we came across for the first time or we considered for the first time. So um, we use the Battle of Hastings as the case study in our chapter about climate and the conditions of the landscape of the battle. Um, and of course, it's, you know, it's a, a pretty well-known thing that the Battle of Hastings actually happens a couple of months later than it probably would have done because there are these big storms in late summer 1066, which mean that William and the fleet from Normandy can't cross the Channel. Mm. Um, but those storms also had an effect on the landscape that the battle was eventually fought on. So the water table was very high. That meant the availability of fresh water in the South England landscape was far greater than it might normally have been. So William could keep his army down by the coast. He didn't have to go in search of fresh water. And of course, that then impacted the battle location and the, the state of the, uh, the Anglo-Saxons who have to march that bit further to get to William. Uh, it, it's all of these extra layers of understanding that certainly I hadn't considered when we went into this project. But the beauty of the project was getting to explore some of these different factors on battle that perhaps as medievalists or as modernists, we, we hadn't thought about yet. That's great yeah. stuff, isn't it, Derek? It's just, you know, it, it, you're introducing all these layers, like you said. I mean, it's not just simply that one army was bigger than the other one or was even arguably stronger than the other one. You have all these factors thrown in, which, as you pointed out, I'd, I'd never really considered this before. I mean, I saw the battlefield, the slope, where they had the advantage of the height over the Normans, mm -hmm. and yet the Normans still uh, still came true. I never considered the, the, the conditions of the ground, which is obviously important if you're riding big, heavy, armoured horses, yes. right? Yeah. And, Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, this is starting to emerge a little bit through history, I think, and, you know, battlefield conditions, mm. Waterloo being a famous one as well, mm. how it rained overnight, we, we, we know about this, you know. So, like, I, I just bring us on to what, I presume Waterloo is covered by yourself then, Graham, would that be true to say? Yeah, so, so the, the structure of the book is thematic, so there are chapters on, on society, on leadership, on conditions, terrain, etc. And one of them is the, the clash of arms, which is kind of the moment where armies come together, where soldiers actually fight. What actually happens in that second? Well, that, that, those few seconds of, of actual combat to make one side run, one side stay, some men fight, some don't. So I was trying to explore that and explore it a little through the Battle of Waterloo. So what was happening at that moment of clash? We've got all these factors that lead into it, which, you know, at, at Waterloo, like you say, the conditions play a massive part. Yeah. Men are hungry, they're cold, they're wet. You know, this is mid-June. It should be nice and warm, but they're frozen from a bad night. They're absolutely soaked through. A lot of them haven't eaten for a few days because the baggage carts can't get to them with the food. You know, the, the conditions play a, a big role. And, and Napoleon, of course, goes and claims that, that that's what, what stymied him. You know, he couldn't move his troops and his artillery because of the mud. He's largely wrong or, or exaggerating. But, you know, they, they do play a big role. And I, I was looking at kind of, you know, the, the moment of impact, as it were. And, and the conditions are, are important there, too. You know, men are tired. They've walked across a muddy field full of crops, uh, you know, trampled crops. It, it's actually quite difficult to do that, more than walking on a road. So all of these things kind of factor into that, that second where men make that decision. Do we go forward, backward, stay where we are? Mm -hmm. Or in, in many cases in Waterloo, just drop to the ground and hope for the best. You know, there's one moment where the, the British cavalry countercharge and um, you know, the, the iconic one, uh, the Scots Greys, um, yes. the Inniskillen Dragoons, 
and the, the Blues and Royals, and then the, um, the Household Cavalry as well, they all charge the, the French lines. And loads of Frenchmen at that stage just drop to the ground and go, I'm, I'm going to pretend to be dead. <laughs> I'll ride past, and then I'll jump up and run off. Um, I, I don't know why it's making me giggle. It's not really a very funny yeah. um, position to find yourself in, because you can imagine these big, there were big horses, right, with big men on top of yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, riding into these French, and they broke the French ranks, right? I mean, just true, pure, sheer force. And probably, before they even contacted, there was probably that fear element that had an impact before the physical clash. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a line of a couple of thousand horsemen coming towards you is going to instill fear, especially if a horse has got up a bit of pace, the ground begins to shake. You know, you can see those those swords flashing in the air. Horses are big beasts. They're big enough without someone on. With a, a five foot ten bloke on top of it wielding a 35 inch blade, absolutely. it's terrifying. And, and a lot of these French conscripts, you know, like I say, drop to the ground or decide that actually running backwards is the better part of valor. And those who stand are basically ridden over. You know, several thousand do surrender, but, but it, it's pretty brutal. Now, there's also a moment there where uh, you know, the legend is that the Scots Greys are charging through and the 92nd Highlanders see them charging and, and cry, Scotland forever. They grab onto their stirrups, they charge with them. And my theory there is that actually they're trying not to get crushed by the horses. They're grabbing the stirrups because you know, these horses are coming at them and otherwise they'll end up under the hooves. So, you know, Waterloo is greatly mythologized, but I think the, the terror of the cavalry is something that, you know, we see in Hast- at Hastings, you know, yeah. Yeah. big horses charging people. We see it at Waterloo. You know, we see One it thing at Waterloo and on that, that period of history would be, you know, the, the soldiers holding the line as cannon shot rolls at speed, taking out people's ankles and whatnot. The, the discipline required there, I, I, I just, I want can't quit my head around that one at all, you know. And they could see the um, cannonballs, Derek. Yeah, bouncing, yeah, especially in the mud. Yeah, absolutely. Like the mud's getting back to the, the conditions, like it slowed down, like, you know, it, cannonballs are going into the mud. And some places that helped the British in particular because it took the, the impact out of the shells. But then in other cases where it did hit hard ground, those those balls of cast iron that just bounce. And the, there's accounts of the ensigns who hold the flags just having to flinching. And they're being hit on the on the shoulders by by their captains. You don't flinch like it's a, it's a gentleman, you know. What what an astonishing! You're going to have to drag us away from Waterloo because we could spend the entire interview talking. Because I I've been to Waterloo several times. I don't know what it is about that battlefield in particular it keeps bringing me back. I know, like you know, I didn't have any particular uh, family history in it, but there was a huge Irish contingent, which is often overlooked. I would argue something like some stuff. Statistics are like what about forty percent of the actual of Wellington's actual British soldiers were either Irish or from uh, the island of Ireland. So maybe it's that I'm not sure. And as you know, here in Dublin, myself and Derek did an episode about we have the Wellington Monument in Phoenix Park, which is like one of the biggest obelisks. Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced in, in Europe. But anyway, we could talk about Waterloo till literally the horses, the, the big big horses come home. But just coming back to you, Rachel, the, the, another big battle I, I presume you covered is Agincourt. That's right. the, the weather conditions there played a huge part. But also, here's, here's I mean, if, if the figures, you might be able to, to reveal some, if the figures are true, I mean, it was like 10 against 1 or, or 6 against 1. And again, the, the English army won that day. Can, can you just tell us what you learned from, from presumably, researching this battle, what, what you learned about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you picked up on one of the one of the differences, I guess, in studying medieval to more modern battles is the certainty we can have about certain elements of the battle. So the first thing that we're perhaps not quite as certain about in the medieval period and into the modern period, too, is the size of the armies involved. Medieval chroniclers are kind of famous for seeing a big crowd of men and saying, oh, there are 80,000 people there. And, and, you know, that's your adult male population of, of X part of the kingdom. So we have to be a little bit careful with some medieval battles. Agincourt is actually one of the battles where we can be quite a bit more kind of confident about the size of the English army, at least, because of the work on medieval soldiers, the medieval soldier online that Anne Curry and a group of academics have done charting the men who are campaigning who are fighting in France. So the the Medieval Soldier Online project has kind of identified that perhaps the English weren't outnumbered quite as much as myth would have us believe. It was probably, as you say, possibly six to one rather than the 20 to one numbers that tended to get banded around a while ago. But it was kind of certain that the English were outnumbered there. So one of the the things we looked at across different battles was, well, the presumption would be that an outnumbered army starts at a disadvantage, right? But actually, we come across multiple battles where the smaller group are victorious. And so what are the factors that play into that victory? And one of the things we found time and again was the ability of leadership to react to the situation on the battlefield. So if an army arrives on the battlefield with a very rigid battle plan, very rigid tactics that they are going to rely on, you kind of get the feeling, regardless of things like terrain or enemy action, then they tend to be at a disadvantage. Whereas if an army is a little bit more adaptable, they perhaps have an advantage that can mitigate to some extent the imbalance of numbers. And that's what we see at Agincourt a little. So Agincourt is the case study in our chapter on tactics. So, you know, what what are the plans on the battlefield? How are armies maneuvering uh, around one another and into one another? And I think it's fair to say that the English army at Agincourt were a little bit more agile on the battlefield. And a big part of that is going to be the, the contingent of the English who are archers. You know, they are much lighter to move around a field than mounted knights who have the horse to contend with, the armor to contend with. Uh, And, you know, trying to turn a group of 20 horses is just a bit of a nightmare, whereas 20 lightly clothed men, much easier. And the English army at Agincourt was very much based, uh, as we know, on the archer, right? Because... A lot of the men at arms have suffered terribly from dysentery. A lot of them have gone home. The English army by the point of Agincourt is dominated by the archer and they are a more maneuverable force. Uh, And that's one of the, I think, the the factors on the battlefield at Agincourt. And speaking specifically about leadership there, of course, famously, Henry Henry V plays a huge part, you know, if we focus him, him a little bit, like, you know, St. Christmas Day speech, all that band of brothers, we, we few, we happy few. I mean, it's soul-stirring stuff, isn't it? And like, you know, you were saying about the, the discrepancy in numbers, and you have to be careful. You know, 
but there were people there writing this stuff down, wasn't there? And and yes, get maybe getting exaggerating the numbers, but but how sure are we, Rachel, that there was this iconic figure, this king, who by all accounts is right at the forefront, you know, got all his preparations correct the night before, gave this rousing speech. I mean, you know, is this just a good tale or is there something to, to hook it onto? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously that the image of Henry V we have is so coloured by Shakespeare and by Band of Brothers and by the, the layers of history that get applied onto this confrontation, right? Yeah. But there are signs in the contemporary narratives that the, the leader of the battle was really accepted as the figurehead. You know, this was not a period where the leader stood separate from the battle on a distant hill commanding from a safe location. Uh, they weren't always in the front line. You know, that would be a bit daft, putting your big cheese right at the front. But they are in the thick of it because they have to communicate orders. They have to communicate uh, changes in tactic very quickly sometimes. So the leader as an individual was really crucially important. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we see echoes of that perhaps at something like Cressy, where Edward III is very much kind of in command of what his army is doing. Uh, he's got his son, the Black Prince, on the battlefield. At one point, it looks like the Black Prince is going to be captured by the French. Uh, in fact, there's a possibility he was briefly captured by the French before, before escaping or, or being caught back by the English. And Edward III is, is there trying to manage a whole battlefield, but is also being potentially distracted by his son and heir, uh, who might be in a very dangerous position. So I think that the role of leader can be really important, you know, because they are making those decisions on the battlefield. They are the figurehead. Mm. Think about something like, you know, Richard III's charge at Bosworth, where he seems to see Henry Tudor at this point, Henry VII, in the distance, and he charges with his cavalry down the field to get to Henry because he knows, cut off the snake's head, you kill the snake, right? So he's, he wants Henry Tudor. And that's a, an instantaneous decision by the leader of an army that could easily have changed the course of that battle. And obviously with it, the course of a significant part of, of Western European history as well, right? So it, it's not just the, the kind of the if you like the romanticized idea of the leader of the battle or the commander of an army as the figurehead, but we can see sometimes that they do make these instantaneous decisions that have a huge impact on the way the battle's fought as well. And fast forward then again a few hundred years, Graham, again, sorry, just bring it back to Waterloo. There's an account then on the morning that uh, they could actually briefly see each other, right? So Wellington is on his ridge. You know, he looks across and sees Napoleon on his big charger, I think his name is Copenhagen, and a gunner beside him says, oh, take a shot, sir. And of course not, damn you, you ruffian. It's just not the done thing, was it? Like, so what you were saying there, Rachel, there was like, go, go, cut up the snake's head, battle done, saves a lot of lives. But fast forward a few years, the, the chivalry then, ironically, was a little bit different. Is, is that fair to say then? Is that accurate to say? Yeah, so Waterloo's a really interesting one because you know, Wellington's never faced Napoleon. And he does see him just before the battle where Napoleon kind of rides up and down his army, um, reviewing the troops, basically oh, waiting for him. Yeah, they get, get them all cheering, get them all riled up. And uh, you know, he's basically waiting for another division to get into position. But he takes that time to have a bit of a review. 
and he can be seen from the Allard Ridge, and, and Wellington does see him. And the, there is this story that you know someone asks, can they take a shot? And Wellington rebukes him and says, no, it's not the, the role of army commanders to shoot at each other. And you think that for, for Wellington, the gentleman, um, it, it's an ungentlemanly thing to go shooting at someone before a battle started, maybe. But he also doesn't want his artillery wasting ammunition. And you suspect if one gun goes off, the, the nervous gunners up and down the line would have been blasting away at the, the French as well. So maybe he's got that in mind. But I think you know, Wellington has this, this idea of, of gentlemanly conduct that, uh, that maybe feeds into that. But you know, there, there are key similarities of uh, a leader as, um, as an inspiration to the troops at Waterloo. You know, Wellington's in the thick of the action. There's loads of, of men's accounts that say you know, he was there at the forefront of things. He wasn't you know, firing a pistol or taking his sword to the French, but he's there inspiring the troops he's leading from the front. Uh, Napoleon doesn't. He kind of sits this one out at the back, but Marshal Ney, kind of you know, his battlefield commander, he's at the front. He has four horses killed under him during the battle. So the you know, leadership continues on pretty much till you know, the end of the Napoleonic Wars with this idea that you should lead from the front, you should be an example, you should inspire your troops. And then I, I guess with the advent of the longer range rifle, that suddenly becomes semi-suicidal. You know, in the Boer War, the occasional general tries it and um, doesn't live to tell the tale. And that's where things started to change then, because the Boer War, you know, then you go into the two big wars. The battles that we both discussed just there were effectively settled in one day, right? And, you know, so they're nice and complete. You know, two armies face up and all these factors, these fascinating factors that you're bringing into play as to why events unfold as they did and who won and why they did. But the, the, the big, the two big world wars, now you're covering, this is a, a huge panorama so, did, like, how did you focus? Did you focus in on particular battles, or did you take an overview of of the wars? If you could break that down, with the the world wars, um, we we talked in in a general sense in the thematic sections uh, about how battle was was generally fought, but we also used specific examples. And from the First World War, for example, we have uh, the Somme and, and Cambrai as, as two examples. But the, the Somme is such a big battle; yeah. I actually had to narrow that down to the first day of the Somme. Uh, yeah. And I, I was actually talking about leadership with the Somme um, and, and basically just had to, to go for the Battle of Albert, that first day of the Somme, and from the British perspective mostly, because that is seen, I suppose, in, in British historiography and you know, in New Zealand, I think, as well, as, as a bit of a disaster, as the Chateau Generals not knowing what they're doing, sending men over the top, 60,000 casualties in a day, the, the biggest disaster for the British Army. And we, we don't necessarily disagree with that. You know, it's a disaster. Something obviously goes wrong for those casualties and such few gains compared to the French, especially to the south of the river, who, who make quite large gains uh, with far fewer casualties. But we do kind of rehabilitate the generals slightly. You know, the chateau general idea, well, by the First World War, if you're not in your chateau as a general, you're doing something wrong. If you're in the trenches, you're just in the way. You know, people in the trenches are trying to do a job. They don't want some bloke with braid on his shoulder. Yeah wandering around getting himself shot so you know the, the generals didn't quite know what they were doing they also couldn't communicate with their troops as much of course actually trying to communicate with men going across no man's land uh is really difficult you know you, you can run a telephone line across but a shell will probably blow that up in seconds she's getting no, close yeah yeah absolutely there's, there's no portable radios you can send runners back but after a while the volunteers dry up for quite obvious reasons they keep getting shot um no, you, you carry a pigeons, but you know, run across no man's land with a pigeon in the first attack. It's really difficult for these um, forward troops to communicate back with the generals what's happening. Uh, so often it's, it's hours after an advance has gone in that the generals even have a clue what's happened. 
And by that time, there's been a counterattack or men have been cut off. Junior leadership has broken down, perhaps, when officers are killed on the ground and the soldiers get scattered or surrendered. So the First World War was a bit of a mess from a leadership perspective. And we, to, to, to demonstrate that, we had to kind of focus down on this, this one day, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. We also talked about weapons in, in a section on, on Cambrai, because, again, that's quite a, a narrow battle by First World War standards. You know, it's only a month, which, uh, you know, sounds ridiculous when we've just talked about Agincourt, which is over in a couple of hours, and Waterloo, which yeah. is a day. But, you know, it's a relatively narrow, constrained battle, I suppose. And it's also really interesting from the weapons point of view, because the British Army has learned combined arms uh, and really makes some great gains at the start. And then... When the Germans counterattack, they're not using anything new. They're just using their old weapons in new ways. You know, stormtrooper tactics that we'll see in 1918 are coming in here at the end of 17. So that was a really interesting one. And then briefly, Second World War, we also looked at Stalingrad uh, with logistics. Um, oh, very interesting. Which was a massive one. Yeah, absolutely. Like logistics, like that's, you see, what's fascinating to me is that you're bringing in all these teams, if you like, but they apply across the board, be it Agincourt, be it Waterloo, be it Stalingrad, be the first day of the sun, leadership, the conditions of the ground, the state of, of the armies, you know, um, all these different factors, but they all play the same game, regardless of what you're talking about through history. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And what we really enjoyed doing, actually, was was charting the similarities, the surprising similarities across a millennia of, of military history, you know, and, and yeah, obviously the, the weapons have changed quite considerably, but the concerns about keeping those weapons dry, keeping those yeah. weapons the, the right temperature, actually those are still challenging for soldiers in the 21st century, 20th century, as they were in the 11th, 12th century. So. Oh, 100%, and that's the last um, location in, in, in the title, Helmand, so, you know, you're still talking about the same things, the same concerns the soldiers had at Agincourt. And obviously in, in Helmand, you know, they're dealing with a whole different like raft of problems, but the same issues, if that makes sense. So they're, de- they're obviously out, out in the desert. Can you tell us a little bit how you, what you did on Helmand? Um, so when we were looking at uh, Afghanistan, we actually kind of have a, an example from a, a Canadian battle at Panjwai, which is just outside Helmand province. But um, this, this is the battle... Uh, where the Canadians were basically tasked with taking out a Taliban stronghold. And the Taliban had decided what they wanted to do was rather than hit and run tactics, they were going to concentrate, create a stronghold that would draw coalition forces to attack it, and they could basically create a bloodbath. Um, they could inflict enough casualties in a stand-up battle against coalition forces uh, to, to force political pressure at home for someone to pull out, you know, the Canadians in this case. And the Canadians are tasked with basically taking this out but they, they've got the same considerations as an army a thousand years before in terms of they need to, to feed the troops, they need to give them water, they need to, to communicate with each other. Um, now there's a horrible friendly fire incident um, as part of this battle where an American A-10 strafes a Canadian column because the, the Canadians are waiting to go in for an attack and um, I think that they're burning rubbish, essentially. And the, the fires there, the pilot mistakes for Taliban cooking fires and he, and he strafes the Canadians and about 30 men or 30 soldiers get killed or wounded. Uh, and you know, it's, a, it's a horrible incident. And these kind of considerations of identifying your own forces, of feeding them, of watering them, of bringing the munitions forward, of making sure you've got the right tactics, um, of not being profligate with lives. Mm. Now, all of these things we, we see in previous conflicts, as, yeah. you know, all the way back to Hastings. 
That's, yeah, that's, absolutely. Um, yeah. One, one of our examples in our chapter on logistics is the Battle of Hattin, uh, 1187. So this is a fort near the Sea of Galilee, uh, as they would refer to it. And it was uh, King Guy of Jerusalem versus Saladin. And this uh, was a disaster of logistics. The, uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem's army basically destroys itself with a complete neglect of logistical support, particularly water, which you'd have thought if you're campaigning in the Holy Land in this period, getting to wells and watering holes is going to be somewhat of a priority. But the, the Crusader army are so keen to, mm. uh, to, to get to the Sea of Galilee that they can see shining in the distance that they bypass every water hole for a day and a half. And you know, lo and behold, 15 miles from water, uh, they, they get caught by the, the army and, um, of Saladin and, and get destroyed. Uh, a lot of them give up before the first blade has, has stuck because they're so thirsty. Um, so, you know, again, entirely logistic nightmare that, uh, that anyone operating in that part of the world, I'm, I'm sure, would sympathize with. Okay, Rach, um, so I went um, to, to, to the horns of Hattin, that battlefield in, in modern-day Israel, and, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You can stand there and you can see the water just right there. And, you know, the, the accounts are just, like, extraordinarily dramatic, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, it's a, like a massive crusader army. I think part of the battle is depicted in that movie, isn't it? The, um, yeah, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven, yeah. 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 So it just shows the aftermath. It doesn't show yeah. the situation where you had this seemingly overwhelming army, uh, very well armed, very well trained, very arguably well led up to a point, um, and then all these different factors came in. And then, what well, isn't there accounts of, of the Arab armies, like you know, sort of drinking their water, <laughs> yeah, just kind of like you know, in front of the crusaders and lighting yeah. fires for the brush smoke to go into their faces, and then sitting back and drinking. So you have all this psychological warfare going on too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the uh, Islamic army are bringing water on camelback and horseback. And so they have absolutely prioritized the basics of logistics for their army. And yeah, that's right. There's this 50% believable story uh, of when King Guy is captured. Uh, he is offered some water by Saladin. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they seem to be kind of using water and using logistics to make a point that perhaps uh, Saladin's army have, have done far better because they considered the welfare of their soldiers in a way that Guy and, and his commanders perhaps did not. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Derek, you, you haven't been to Hatim yet. Um, no, Verdun, no, no, Verdun no. is yeah, your, your... Verdunwood is a place I've been to, yeah, a good, a good, good few times. All right. Um, one thing I suppose that would have a big impact and, and is often not really discussed is um, keeping uh, an army, especially an army on the march, free of disease because obviously when you put so many you know dysentery obviously would be a, a big one obviously you know latrines and all that and providing sanitation very very difficult and also when you're far from home as well you're into areas where there's all sorts of different things that you're not you're not uh, used to and a lot of times uh, you know having i mean up to 50 percent of, of a force rate fight in the day would be pretty good if you're if you're far from home would that be true yeah and uh I think Napoleon would experience a lot uh, in in Russia, 
certainly when he got caught up there, a lot of uh, the army were uh, riddled with disease on, on, on the on the that death march back home. Yeah, I mean the the Russian invasions are a really interesting one because everyone will say, you know, it's the winter that does it; it's the retreat. Actually, Napoleon loses about four fifths of his army on the way out, and it's disease. It, it's it's typhus, typhoid. These things are rampant in the army. They're killing men on a daily basis. There's not enough water. Uh, you know, Russia in the summer gets hot. Uh, people often underestimate it. They think because it's cold in the winter, it must be temperate in summer. But it, it goes to extremes of heat that we we don't really see in you know in our part of the world necessarily. So it's hot. There's a lack of water. They're eating um, bad food. And disease is rife in that army. And by the time Napoleon gets to, to Borodino, you know, before he's even got to Moscow, he gets to his first battle, he's only got about 130,000 left. So, uh, you know, a third of the men he set out with left. Okay, some have been dropped off for garrisons, some have been left to, to hold supply lines, some have been lost in previous clashes. But he's lost over half his army, already dead and, and ill from disease. Um, and as you say, keeping the rest of them free for disease, such a problem. So, you know, they set up military hospitals but in the French army these are basically just death hospitals you know men with disease are put there they're given a bit of food if, if there's some to spare but you know you're lucky to, to get out of there again and just keeping an army fit like you say really really difficult all the way up to the world wars and the first world war is pretty much the first conflict where more men are killed by the enemy than by disease every conflict before that in history through the war you're going to get more men who die of disease um, you know the Napoleonic Wars is proportionally the same casualties for France and Britain as the First World War, but most of those casualties are actually off the battlefield. Incredible, isn't it? Which, which is a horrendous statistic. It, yeah. it is, you know, on board ships as well, in particular, right, when they lose so much of their crew, mm-hmm. you know, through, through simple things of just not, well, obviously they're at sea, so they don't have, you know, fresh food and the access that perhaps ground armies have as well. And, you know, what what commander was it that introduced? Was it Captain Cook introduced a very simple um, technique? It, it just was it lime juice? Something just brought, you know, it, it to keep crews. It, it, it almost halved the death rate. You know, these the simple things that they discovered almost as they went along. They didn't have any scientific back backup to it. You know, so this is like. Do you think that that leaders necessarily over the centuries learned from previous leaders? An army's mistakes, or did they just consider them completely non not relevant to their own actions? I think there's a big element of of playing up to those big personalities, those, those big legendary figures themselves, right? Because we we're looking at such a long duration of history that a lot of the kind of semi mythical figures in our early periods, so William the Conqueror, for example is himself a legendary figure to yeah. late medieval leaders or early modern leaders. So I think there's an element of this idea of playing up to the legend or the expectation that is on you as a military commander. Yeah. You know, and especially, as we were saying earlier, in the medieval period, there is an expectation that as a monarch, you fight you know, you you don't need to be in the thick of it, but you need to at least be on the battlefield, and you need to look like you know what you're doing. Um, and so the, there is this big emphasis on leadership, I think, to to at least have the appearance, the veneer of competence on the battlefield, and and living up to this expectation placed by 
generations of claimed success, even though perhaps it's not realistic success all the time. Yeah. We often hear from the victors, you know, we often hear, you know, back to Agincourt, you know, we have to claim yeah. speech and whatnot. We don't, and as Graham points out though, you know, like Napoleon did spend a few years after Waterloo giving out uh, everybody and everything that went wrong that day. He was wandering around with St. Helena on his own, just muttering to, uh, to, to the unfortunate people that had to listen to him. An Irish doctor, I believe, is one of them who wrote down, he was just giving out, you know, he just, just would not take any responsibility whatsoever. And um, so, like, do you think, like, okay, the victors are obviously going to pronounce what they've done. And outside of Napoleon, is there any other big figures from history that kind of bemoan their fate? You know, like, at, 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 say, at, after the first day of the psalm, you know, I, I don't think that emerged, is that right, until months later, just how drastic it was. But, you know, is there any figures that kind of go, well, you know what? I put my hands up. That was on me. <laughs> I got it badly wrong. Sorry about that. You know, is there anybody who jumps out that 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 in the, in the leadership category that we're talking about that would tick that box? Well, off the top of my head, for someone who who admits that they got it horribly wrong, um, oh, it's difficult because um, they normally do this self justification. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's a, you know, if <laughs> if they're on the winning side, like you know, Hagen, the First World War, uh, you know, he. Stiff upper lip says, no, it was worth it. Okay, we, we could have done better. But uh, fundamentally, this was the way the war had to be won. If you're on the losing side, you normally blame someone else. If you're a general, you blame the government. If you were in the government, like Napoleon, you know, he's, he's head of state. He can't blame the government. So he blames everything else from the weather to illnesses to the enemies cheating to people betraying him. I, I think there's a huge amount of blame, but I, I'm struggling to think of a general who... who do you know, right it's, it's a tough question, guys, in fairness, because, like I said, you hear from the victors all the time, and the ones that went down, you know, you don't hear so much about... Them. Well, you, you hear about them blaming other people, but you, mm -hmm. you don't... You're not going to... Nothing jumps out for me that somebody just... You know what, Governor? Fair cop. Yeah. It, it, fault, you know? But, um, with that, so it's like... You know, societies would... Obviously, from which the, the, the soldiers come from, I, I think... Probably more so, I may be wrong, in, in more modern times, have a, a bigger part to play. I know, Leo, when you referenced Verdun, you know, it was Falkenheim saying he wanted to bleed France uh, white. So in the hope that obviously that, you know, the, the French citizenry would force the hand of the politicos to, to remove them uh, from, from the war. And, you know, you, you can see, obviously, you know, in the, in the march to the First World War, you've got the pals, you know, all that whole thing where people went to fight for, for their friends and their towns and their villages. Um, and, and if you bring it right up to today, you know, maybe one of the key differences between what's happening in Ukraine um, is the fact that the society in Ukraine is very much backing their defence whereas society in Russia isn't really behind what, what Putin's doing. So does that change from the, from the medieval to the modern? Or you know, has society much, you know, a role to play in, in, the, uh, in medieval times? Mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the recruitment of medieval armies itself is a, a massive topic, right? You know, what, why are these guys turning up on the battlefield to fight? And I think to a certain extent, you're, you're right, they're they're doing it less from a sense of societal cohesion against a specific enemy in the way that, you know, we might see in more modern warfare. But I think there is a sense of cohesion against a specific idea or in favor of a specific cause. 
particularly the hierarchy you get, right? So if we look at Bosworth, for example, we find in Henry Tudor, the future Henry VII's army, uh, people who we would identify as Yorkists, right? They're, they come from Yorkist retinues. They may even be born into the wider Yorkist affinity, but they're fighting with a Lancastrian king because they believe in his cause rather than Richard III's cause. You get that with certain levels of society, whether you get that with the the men sent from York to fight for King Richard III, I'm, I'm somewhat more doubtful. I suspect those men are sent from the city because they are the men the city sends when the king calls for soldiers. Um, you know, and unfortunately, it's that level of society that we have far less evidence of motivation for in the medieval period because they're the guys who aren't necessarily asked and they're the guys who aren't writing things down as, as, as extensively as the guys who are at the top end of the army who are writing home saying, yeah, I've gone over to Henry Tudor's side because actually I suspect he would be a better king than Richard. Um, so I think there's perhaps a, a level of society difference in the medieval period that obviously doesn't exist in the less societally hierarchical armies, perhaps, of the later 20th century. And I guess it also depends whether you're being invaded or doing the invading. Um, now if, if you're being invaded, it, it's easier to maybe join a military force or think, you know, this is, this is my home. I've got to defend it. If I don't, no one will. Now, in, in the era of professional armies of the, the 18th, 19th, and maybe early 20th centuries, there might be a temptation to try to leave that to the professionals. But increasingly, with warfare being so destructive, um, in fact, it was always destructive, wasn't it, if you're being invaded? Um, you know, pe- people do want to, to join that force. You've got much more motivation to fight if you're you know, on the receiving side of this. Whereas, I guess, if you are in the invading force somewhere, especially if things aren't going brilliantly, you, know, you, you maybe fancy sitting that one out a bit. And, and maybe we do see this in the bits of the medieval period, where you know, if you look at the Hundred Years' War, most of the English mm. soldiers, and hopefully Rachel won't correct me for getting this wrong, um, but hope, I think most of the English soldiers are professionals in that conflict. They're not yeah. levies. They're not people who are, are dragged to war. They're professionals being paid because it's much harder to, to get levies in for an offensive campaign, whereas if it's your home, you know, you're more likely to stand up and, and try and fight yeah, yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely correct for for the English army in the Hundred Years' War. You know that this idea of what is motivating men to fight, uh, and many men in the Hundred Years' War were motivated at least on the surface by that's how they make their money. You know, they're they're there to get paid. There are all sorts of other layers of of what they might be trying to do in terms of nationhood or fighting for one side or the other, but. I think that something that often gets written out of medieval warfare, late in medieval warfare especially, is, is the, the basics of, yeah, these are professional soldiers whose job is to fight, and, and therefore that's why they're used. Gotcha. Well, what yeah. have we covered this evening? What, what we've got leadership, we've got ground conditions, we've got logistics, you know, and what, what a wide range of topics we've covered. And this is obviously all in the book, which, you know, I'm... I'm Straight out going together. Yeah, definitely, I'll be reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's sure. sales sure. right there. Before, like, we could talk all evening. Honestly, we've all got a very similar passion and love for this stuff, you know. Um, do, you have any, do you have a particular favorite battles? Do, do, do each of you have a particular 
battle that you go, you know what, this is not even going to be work for me. Uh, this is going to be just, I'm going to look forward to the next day or two, going to immerse myself in this. This is my guilty pleasure. Does that apply? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I'm, I'm going to go for the cliche one. It's Waterloo. Um, oh, I you know, this is one that, you know, I've, uh, I've, uh, probably the first battle I remember hearing of, uh, you know, I had the toy soldiers as a kid and, you know, watched the 1970 film several hundred times. Um, it, it's got to be Waterloo for me. Uh, presumably you've been there, Frames, Waterloo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a great battle site. The only thing you come away wondering is, did Napoleon actually lose that? <laughs> Because it's just a shrine yeah. to the emperor. It really is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's it's amazing stuff. I came away there double checking my history as well, you know. But it is it's just so intact. You can walk around it in half an hour, forty five minutes. And what's most amazing for me is that the actual buildings are still there, two hundred years ago. You know, Ugamont, La Sainte. You have like the the those three famous trees. I think there's only two now. One got blown over that, that had the musket ball holes in them. You know, history writ large, you know, history that you can actually touch. Um, Rachel, what about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for one that I think is one of the, one of the more intact battlefields. Um, I'm going to go for Flodden, oh. uh, which probably as a medievalist is a bit late for my period, right? And it's one we haven't mentioned tonight. But um, we've been to Flodden quite a few times and the battlefield is still very much intact. It's still visible. You, you can still kind of look at the hill and see the Scottish army. You can look in the dip and imagine the soldiers in the clawing mud trying to fight and trying to avoid the, the English. And, and yeah, I, I think it's the atmosphere of the battle at Flodden that uh, I'm going to go for. <laughs> and as we mentioned, Derek, for you, it's very done, isn't it? You, you've been there. Yeah, yeah well. I've been there a few I'm, times, yeah. It's kind of hard to explain, isn't it, sometimes? Just what, like I've been to many, many battlefields, but, you know, one that you'll be repeatedly drawn back to. And I've no personal explanation for me and, and Waterloo, similar to kind of what Graham took off. You know, there's the pageantry. You know, I, I know it was like a lot, terrible loss of life that day, but it's also like this great colour. The flags, the, the, you know, the whole pageantry behind two great armies facing off and the uniforms and the shackles, you know, it's all... It's all really, you know, kind of kid-like stuff in a, in a way, in a, in a naive way, perhaps, considering what absolutely what actually did turn out there. So, guys, they you don't know, fight like that no more. No, they don't. They really don't. Unfortunately, as we're seeing, sadly, we're playing on our TV screens almost every night, or more so on the internet. Did you just before you write? Did you presumably you enjoyed writing this book? Was it your first collaboration? And would you would you consider further works together, or do you have? future plans or what's what's going on yeah sorry rachel go on <laughs> uh yeah no, they go awkward, like, like what if, what if you go, i'm really looking forward to working <laughs> <laughs> this could be an awkward moment <laughs> couldn't it but I, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna go first and yeah. uh and yeah i mean absolutely i i think if we uh if we could look at something about wider campaigning uh or the experience of combatants uh again i i think you know, the, the looking at the soldier and the soldier's experience across a millennia of history um, would, would be a really fascinating project. Um, that being Medieval said... Medieval PTSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there is so much to be done on, uh, on medieval, uh, the mental health of medieval soldiers and the experience mm. of, of medieval soldiery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something like that as a, as a cohesive... Yeah 
project would be uh, would be fantastic. Um, there you but go, I know Graham. There you go, pressure then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I hate to break it to him, but no, I, I really enjoyed uh, writing this as well. I think it, it was a really nice experience of um, kind of you know writing this thing for someone else to read immediately as well, because you know normally you you put something together and no one's going to see it for a year or so. Whereas in this case, you know, we could shoot chapters off to each other, get feedback off each other. But also, I think, I mean, I, I really enjoyed writing it because I had to do a lot of research on some of the medieval topics. Because what we did was basically take a, a series of chapters each, do a first draft and send it over for, um, mm -hmm. for revision by the other person. So like when I was writing the society chapter, I suddenly realized I don't know enough about recruiting medieval armies and how that society works. So I read a huge amount about that. Uh, and then wrote a huge amount about it in the chapter to try to please Rachel, basically, uh, and, and prove to her that I knew what I was talking about. Um, but, but no, I, I really enjoyed the, the whole process of it. And uh, as Rachel says, there's, there's a lot more collaboration to be done, hopefully, well, in the future. We, we absolutely look forward to it. I mean, I'm just to yeah. would you make a great team on here this evening. Anyway, really entertaining, really fascinating. I can't believe the time that it's flown so much. Derek, I mean, you know, we're, we're really getting lucky with yeah. that. Was we're just, blessed. Yeah, very, very lucky. Guys, I want to thank you um, for joining us on yeah, the history. Thank you so much. We are just starting out ourselves, but it won't go to waste. It won't vanish into the ether. We have uh, an online presence that's already amazingly taken off. And uh, yeah, we can't wait to have you up there and give the book a good old plug. And what can we say? Look forward to your future works. And yeah. wishing you all the best. Yeah. Thanks okay. so much for having us so on, much. guys. Thank Thank you. You guys. I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks very, very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Wow, that was, uh, yeah, tour de force of uh, academic insight, really, wasn't it? Um, you know, I have said my head was spinning for dates and all that stuff. <laughs> Those two really knew what they were talking about. And uh, I could see, uh, Mr. Federson, oh, you were right in your element uh, in amongst all those battles you were you were there in the mud as they were describing them um, yeah i probably completely um dominated that one but it was right you know you nerd it out it's all right and then yeah it, it's just ticking all them boxes you know all those boxes yeah. for me um but you know to, to hear it from two obviously very well educated intelligent people who know what they're talking about to bring that kind of you know that academic aspect to my yeah. goofy awareness you know um is is a real it's a real pleasure you know you, you oh you, you gave a good account of yourself now you, you went toe to toe if uh if you asked me so um i, I just yeah i forgot, I forgot you know. what i was talking about the ships scurvy right scurvy scurvy yeah that's what I thought. you said lime i, I thought lime. that's what you were yeah, yeah, Actually, it was, it was ships. Yeah, because it was it was a uh, ship's biscuit. That was the problem. That's that's um, the one, and, yeah. and, and that's what where we get the name limeys from. In, in English people, right, referred to as limeys by the Americans because they had lime on board their ships, which you know cut the debt rate down to to nothing. That's but it. Some random yeah, discovery. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, completely nerd note. Here once again. <laughs> well, a good evening. That was really good. Really yeah. Good interesting i hope we our listeners will uh enjoy it as much as we do do we need to plug anything ourselves there in terms of you know the platform what we're doing are we asking we're gonna well, well 
Well, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be asking uh, folks for a small donation. Uh, the suggestion is a euro. Um, you know, we're, what we're doing is great. You know, it's taken up uh, time for sure, time we really, really enjoy. Um, you know, obviously, we'd like to do more. We might like to get into, you know, uh, like a investigation, uh, you know, and, and try and figure some, you know, new historical insights and whatnot along the way but obviously you know um yeah the, the the day job pays for it all at the moment but um we'd love to do more with this um we know it's a huge uh big open field ahead if we wanted to go at it and uh yeah we want to keep getting great guests and improving the content and and you can check us out now on uh, youtube so their youtube channel is live um and uh, we will be putting up uh, episodes there and there might be something of a, a project that we, we will begin working on soon uh which might take a little while to put together but uh do do keep an eye out um uh, but you'll be getting six episodes a month on uh, the podcast from us so you do have that to look forward to brilliant stuff yeah i look forward to it myself um i'm with that Derek. i'll bid you uh yeah. A good evening, au revoir. That's it. Good evening. Of the hip story. See you again soon, folks. All right. Take care. Bye.